<laughs> uh, so, I don't want to talk. <laughs> I just want to acknowledge the silence just for a moment. Because there it was, right? As soon as the tape was on, there it was. How far do we have to go? So I'm going to talk for like 45 minutes about what we just experienced. (laughs) Anyway, (laughs) that's my job. So the talk tonight is entitled, The Critical Role Ego Plays in Awakening. So this much maligned critter called the ego, we want to look at it and explore tonight. We want to see what it is, how it benefits us. Not that it doesn't have its downside, it's obvious. It is laden with with, uh, its own storyline. Memory plays its key role. It bases itself in knowledge and certainty within an uncertain and unknowable universe. It sets itself distinct and distinguished between other forms and objects. And it critically plays the role of perception of separation so that when we look out, we see separate objects, you and I. Why is that? Why do I see like that? That's not the truth. Why is it that I see that way, you see? Well, it's the ego's hold. And our willingness to concede to the ego's language, the ego's perception, that holds us in that fixed relationship between ourselves and the other objects of the world. So how could that possibly be helpful on our spiritual path? How could something that holds the very essence of separation also facilitate the crossing of that separation into unity? Because it does. And first we have to understand what its mission is. Its mission is to keep you functionally safe and fed and secure. That's the mind's role, is to make sure you have bread on your plate and you're not being attacked by wolves. And so it looks out establishing what it knows in the world based upon its history, its memory, its learned philosophies, and decides what is safe and who is safe in the array of objects. And then it tries to navigate oneself, ourself, through all of those obstacles to come to safety. Now you can see that it's a key role because we do need to be safe. We need to know a dog from a wolf. Right? We need to know the difference between what is safe and what is and should be avoided. 
So it gives us that advantage from the beginning. But it begins to become the throned monarch. I sit in this chair as a demonstration. <laughs> and its mastery, it gets um, self-indulgent. It starts liking it. It likes its own language. It likes its own. Uh, it likes its own power. It likes its ability to control, and so it starts growing itself far beyond its capacity as a mentally derived image. <laughs> and I'll get to how it's formed in just a minute. But I just want you to see that even at its most fundamental level of providing safety and food on the table, it's a necessary part of life. And I'll get to how that ability to differentiate is actually leads us out of the sense of entrapment within the ego. But you can see that, you know, as the spiritual journey is a journey towards unsafety. There's just no other way to frame it. You're going, we're going from what we know, our knowledge about, our certainty of, our support systems, and what we count on in life, to a very uncertain perception, one that we haven't experienced enough to feel any safety within. And so what does the ego do to try to protect us from that? It creates fear, sometimes terror. It will do whatever it needs to pull us back so that it's within its fear of knowledge. And so it's not unusual for people who have ventured across the safety line that when they retreat back across to the area of safety and think about what they just experienced, they freak out and get very frightened by what just occurred. Because the ego wants to say, if it could, don't do that again. You think that was bad, wait till you see what I'm going to give you the next time. And it has, you know, the array of instruments, emotions at its, at its, under its control. So it can give you a pretty hard trip. So there has to be more determination than fear. There has to, there has to be something in us. This is beautiful, actually, because it's, it's what makes it all work. There has to be something in us that has more courage than the fear has threat. And I'm not talking about little threats like fear of ants. I'm talking about get out of here because you're going to be destroyed, fear. And there is something in us that does that. And Narayan talks so beautifully about the heart. I always feel like I learn as much from her lectures as anyone among us because she gives that sense of courage just in the way she speaks about 
the availability of the heart. And if you misjudge or misunderstand the nature of the heart as opposed to the wisdom of the emptiness that we're going to, you misunderstand the whole dharma. Those are one and the same. She just speaks from a different angle. But in any case, so this sense of heart, it has in its core... Something that's beyond determination. I don't know what the next word level up <laughs> from determination is, but that's the, it just isn't going to be dissuaded. It's, not going, it's going to be hesitant because it just got shocked. And it says, okay, wow, that was something. I wonder what that was. Then it, it expresses a curiosity about the very thing that shocked it. And why did fear arise in that moment? What was going on there? So through its questioning, it breaks down the very instrument that ego has to keep us contained. And that's why we keep encouraging questioning with you, because it is your determination beyond determination. It is the way forward by questioning that which seems to undermine our safety, and our, and our path. I used to, this is a side, but I used to, at one point in my practice, whatever state of mind froze me, or I felt stuck in, and it could be anything, I wouldn't move until I thoroughly examined it. I would not try to run from it. I said, okay, terror, all right? And I would go into that until there was some level of comfort with it, until I had dissipated the abstract reason to recoil. It was always abstract. And what you begin to do is say, there's nothing in this mind that it can bring up that will paralyze me forever. Yes, temporarily. Yes, it will throw me off, but not forever. And that... that encourages that determination forward. So the ego, in its naivete, is trying to protect you. Now listen to this, because the ego is unconscious. It's the unconscious part of ourselves. If we knew what it was, we wouldn't give it a day's notice. It's like, (laughs) but we don't know what it is, and we give it the credibility of ourselves. So whatever credibility you give as yourself, that's the credibility the ego has over you because it is yourself. And so for us to pass it by as nonchalantly is to miss the whole point of this thing. So what is it in its truth? What is it in its heart of hearts? What is the ego, you see? That same determination quality that wants to, I'm not moving in this rage until I understand it, or whatever it might be, is the same determination that looks at the ego. What is this thing? Why does it have such control over me? These are questions not of fear. These are questions of interest. And like, what is this thing? Wonderment. And that's how we go forward. Not through force of will, 
but through the encouragement of curiosity. So remembering that it's the unconscious part of us and it is at the seat of most of our spiritual journey. It's the driver. Now we have an unconscious driver trying to drive us towards more consciousness. (laughs) Something's wrong if we concede to the methods and strategies of the ego to move our unconscious self to consciousness. It's, It's an oxymoron. So we have to be sophisticated enough to say, okay, so this is what I'm telling myself to do, but that's based upon the conditioning of living within the confines of the ego space. What sense does that make in the Buddha's instructions of from suffering to non-suffering? Or from whatever continuum we feel most comfortably captivates the journey of awakening? And we have to keep testing the ego's language to see if it fits upon the continuum of egoic unconsciousness or if it truly fits along the map of becoming more conscious. And for a long period of time, we don't know how to do that. We're just trying the best we can to move ourselves forward and we're using the same strategies that got us through college or high school or on a good job, or out of the home and making a living. I did it then, and by God, I can do it now. And it's completely useless because it's the unconscious reinforcing that which it does not know or understand or could possibly know. So you go, okay, so this is... This is interesting stuff here. I've got to make it conscious. I've got to make the ego conscious just to know what it is sufficiently so that I can move in cooperation, not in antagonism, antagonism, but in cooperation with it, its good suggestions and release those which are obviously against the direction I want to take. People following this? Okay. Now, let's just for a minute pull back and ask what the ego is. We didn't have one at birth. And this is something I want to spend a little time talking about because somebody who is newly born is merged in mindlessness. There's no mind that has formed yet. And there's no ego. And you can just see the child, the infant, the newborn, just kind of bathing itself in a sort of an ocean of, of, of what? Of mindlessness, because there's no mind. There's awareness, but there's no ability to distinguish anything within that awareness. And we keep thinking what we're trying to do on this journey is to go back to mindless mergence. That's not what we're trying to do. That doesn't allow you to have a life. That allows you to bump your head on everything and try to escape 
through the window rather than the door because you don't know what anything is. So it's not, we're not trying to regress back to some kind of emergence where there's no distinguishment. Okay? Now, as that ego forms, what forms it? It's not some creature in there that's being formed. It's the mind that's forming and maturing itself. And what it does is that it begins to notice through repetition of parents or whoever is giving it what something is. It learns the language of the universe, of the world. And slowly, very slowly, it learns a history with those objects and itself as separate from those objects. And this has to happen. This is essential for our spiritual development because we need distinguishment in order to be free. And I'll explain that in a minute, but just hold on to this for a second. So what happens is it gets embroiled in the array of its own knowledge and of its memory. And because it's somehow, the mind is just an amazing, amazing organ. There, okay, here's an aside. There are a billion neurological tracks, over a billion, okay? So somehow, and all these senses coming in, and thought and emotion, and the organizing quality of all those billion pieces of information. Not, there's no one neuron that holds the whole package. It's just pieces, right? Mosaics. Somehow, all of this that we see, and me that's seeing it, is derived from all of those billion sparks of neuro, neurological pathways. How do those pathways become embedded in the consciousness? Through repetition. Through conditioning. Oh, that's a pillow. Next time I see something of that shape, oh, that must also be a pillow. I remember the other pillow I saw. Now all these neurons are firing in sync around pillow. And now I know pillow, and I have a history with pillow. And what that gives me is a sense of three-dimensionality because I have a past in which I saw a pillow before. And I bet you that pillow is there tomorrow when I come back. So now I have a sense of myself moving through time, and now I'm fully embodied. And where did it come from? Lights on a Christmas tree that we had somehow believed to be us. One neurologist said, it's better to say there are a billion of you than to say there is one of you. Another, I was listening, I love these uh, shows, these um, PBS programs. Uh, Anyway, the one I was... uh, the most recent one was talking about the will, the will, whether in fact there is free will. And how can a neuron that's firing have free will? It can't. It gives us the sense of having a choice, but that choice 
sense of having choice is another neuron firing. There is no free will, not from the point of view of the blueprint of neurology. It just isn't there. But we, in our wisdom, think we have free will. Oh, I'm deciding to... <laughs> Shouldn't have done that. <laughs> So get a sense of how entrapped this whole thing is and how absolutely distinguished and distinct and defined everything is, you see? That's why when you look around, you know everything. Well, tell me what you don't know. You know everything. It's planned that way. That's staying within our conditioning. And from the perception of that distinguishment comes separation, comes me and you. Because if you see from history, you see from knowledge. And knowledge is contained within the form that, that knowledge was originally directed towards. And that's separate from the person stepping sitting next to or behind or in front of. And so the mind configures itself in accordance to what it does to keep it safe, knowledgeable, and control. Now you're getting a sense of what we're up against here? And then there's something of the mind. You see, it's, I, I, love, I love science. I have to. Surgeons can stimulate any part of the brain to replicate a memory or an emotion or an idea or an opinion. It just hits a certain neuron and out comes, you know, whatever it was at six years old that bit you. Because that's all in there. It can't find and never has been able to find a neuron to stimulate that provokes consciousness, awareness. Why, said the Buddha? Because awareness is not of the mind. I'm of the mind, I'm in the mind. I'm a product of the mind. The ego is a product of the mind. It's not the owner of the mind. It doesn't... We don't have a mind. The mind has us. We're contained within it as a thought and an emotion expressed within this canopy of conclusion. Find yourself if you dispute that. Find yourself outside of the mental activity that arises. Now let me go a step further because this is very important. It's also 
something that you'll learn your way into likely rather than just understand it immediately. But it is absolutely true. You are not responsible for the content of your mind. You are not responsible for the thoughts, the ideas, the conclusions, the emotions, the attitudes, the disbeliefs, the opinions, all of it, none of it are you responsible for. Because it is conditioning that's arising. It's from past circumstances. It's the configuration of the past that you are now seeing from. You are seeing this moment because you have known it and believed it and opinionated your way into this perception. And you're not responsible for that. But you are accountable. Because if you let it go unconscious, then it will take you over. And if you hold it within consciousness, then you can release it to be what it is, which is nothing, an idea, a neurological response. And therefore, no matter what comes up in your sitting or in your everyday life, you are not responsible for it. Your anger, your annoyance, your judgment, all that's required is that you be accountable to it which means you bring that one fabric of awareness into it so that that is being seen. Whatever it is, whatever conditioning is, is being seen. The only way to extinguish conditioning is through the present moment because the present moment doesn't add a new pressure or reinforcement of the old. Everything else, judgment, self-anger, self-bitterment, anything that you bring to the mind that's another mental response only reconditions in the old response. You can't say a thing about yourself to escape yourself. Now what are you going to do? Because that's the absolute fact. Now, I say you're going to have to work your way into that, but I hope you all do, because it is one of the most freeing things you'll ever experience when you really know that. Because then it's not you. It's not about all this. And the more we get involved and the more we try to... It doesn't solve anything. Oh, I'm, you can modify your consciousness, your mind. You can make it... Pleasant instead of unpleasant. You can recondition in a new set of pathways. But that's not freedom. That's just a new set of conditioning. And if you want to go that way, that's fine. Because it makes you a nicer person. And there's a benefit to being a nicer person. I have to learn that sometimes. But it has no absolute value, not in terms of your spiritual journey. Not in terms of your spiritual journey, people, because there's something else the heart is pulling for here. Something that it's longing for. Something that it's yearning for. And it's not within the conditioning aspect of it. It's not within the ego's frame of reference. 
But the ego is the master of the conditioning, and it holds, it's a product of that conditioning, but it claims to be the master of it. It claims to be the sovereignty, sovereign of, it can do this and feels that, it claims all the emotions that are spontaneously arising from who knows where, it claims the ownership of, I'm angry, I'm mad, I'm this or that. So it fills itself with a content that it's not even it. What it really is, is the argument, is the judgment, is the con contention that it has for what is arising. That's where it really arises. It rises out of the rub of circumstances. I don't like this, I don't know what that is. Or the knowledge of circumstances, because there's the story of itself within the knowledge. So if it invests in the knowledge of what it sees, then it has a firm sense of being present within that knowledge base. And if I'm contentious with what I see, then I have a sense of me stepping back and having some disagreement with what I see. And that also gives it a sense of life force. But where is it? Okay, so let's go back. Take this in. At a certain uh, age of teaching, a certain, you just want the person that you're teaching to be free. It really doesn't have anything to do with being a good teacher or being seen in a certain way. It really has to do with mudita. And I love Narayan's teaching because it holds that so clearly. But wisdom is another way forward. And so take it in. See if the, what I'm saying is true. Don't take it as a given. See if what I'm saying is true. Everything that's experienceable is observable. Is, can be seen and understood and realized by each one of us. If it is an experience, it can be understood, no matter how subtle the experience. So this thing called ego has its birth within that mindless emergence. Because there's no mind. And there's no sense of distinguishment between one thing and another. So that's not healthy, because you can't live that way. So we have to develop an ego in order to have, in order to have differentiation. You need differentiation, even though differentiation is a myth, is an idea, is an, isn't the truth. <laughs> this is how weird it gets. We develop a fiction because it helps us seek the truth. That's true. And just stay with me as I express how this works. <laughs> it's very weird. <laughs> so the formation of ego, First, before it's formed, there's mindless mergence. And then it starts forming with the backlog of some knowledge and ideas and, 
you know, oh, mama and papa and whatever. So through distinguishment, distincting different forms from one another, it turns in from mindless mergence into mind mergence. Mind mergence is when everything that arises is you're merged into, you're completely identified with. Now, in mindless mergence, whatever passed through, you also totally identified with because you had no sense of it and me. It was just, you're happy, you're sad. That's why a child is just, it's just all over, right? It doesn't have any sense of, of distance from what's going on. So mind emergence and mindless emergence are both kind of reckless. They're not, but let me reemphasize, we're not going towards mindless emergence. That's not where the spiritual journey goes. We think that and we think it falsely. And I'll explain why, what real spiritual freedom looks like in just a minute, but get this point. So, when in mind mergence, you know, I am what the mind thinks because as it was learning about things, it didn't separate itself from those things because it didn't have any distinguishing quality to do that. So it, whatever those, that learned object was, it became that. It, became, it, learned, it learned its way into it so it was, became identified with it. So that's mind mergence. Now, mind mergence is compelled forward by joy and sorrow, by happiness and pleasure, by pain. And, and so most people stay within mind mergence for their entire life because you can frolic in there. A few people begin to feel the pain associated with mind mergence the isolation, the sense of being cut off and separate from, the owner of every emotion and attitude, plus all the logic, the internal logic that we start building up around why we're feeling the way we're feeling, and the conclusions we reach about ourselves in feeling that way. And, so, and it's the pain of the egoic development, this is another positive result of having an ego that sets us on a journey to see if there's an end to that, where there's some solace to all of this sense of, of contrast and comparison and evaluation and judgment. You see? And so the ego plays the role of the perpetrator, the antagonist in the plot that stimulates your desire to grow out of it. Now, there's another aspect of ego development that's extraordinarily important in terms of our spiritual journey. And that is, and it develops the ability to distinguish itself from what it sees. Even though that's a false distinguishment, it's a necessary false. And so I need to be able to see myself have some self-awareness. I need to be able to pick myself out of the mess of the mind and have some sense of me being here and you being there. That's an advantage, and I'll tell you why. 
once I have a proper place, I also have the way to be able to look at that place and see it and test it for the theories I'm offering it. Is this what I'm experiencing, what I think I am? When I, now I begin to form the witness. The ego has allowed that to occur. So now I'm pulling back and looking at myself to see if the self I've convinced myself I am is in fact the self I am. But I can't do that unless I formed as a self because I have nothing to look at, you see? So it's that sense of distinguishment, differentiation that allows me to even be able to perceive myself and be able to ask the questions of whether that perception has any truth to it. And that's called witnessing, looking at, observe, observation. It's mindfulness. Okay, it starts out as me perceiving myself or an object with, see, the, it's driven by the heart now. It's not driven by the mind. Because now that we have separated ourselves, we have a handle on awareness, the ability to see. And the awareness is not of the mind. It's not developed in the mind. If it were part of the mind, the whole thing would be hopeless. If they find a neuron that shows itself as awareness, we're dead. <laughs> They're not going to find one. I promise. It's not going to happen. <laughs> because it's not of the mind. And because it's not of the mind, you can see the mind. Does that make sense to you? Now that you can see the mind, you can distinguish what is true from what is untrue, just as you're doing. When you see an emotion and you see the emotion and you're not the emotion, I mean, if you're seeing it, you can't be it. So you think, oh, I'm not my thought. Thoughts are thinking themselves. Now we begin to see the truth of how the mind is originating. It's originating just like popcorn. It's just going off. It's just Christmas tree stuff, right? And we didn't know that before. And we needed that perspective in order to know that. So the ego has helped us there. Now, of course, the ego has its disadvantage because it gets embroiled in itself. It, itself, it, it makes too much of itself. <laughs> but once we start seeing from a, from a perspective, we start seeing that what we thought we were were not, and the ego starts diminishing. Because it doesn't make sense anymore to claim yourself as reference to something that's just an emission of the mind, you see? Are people following this? I don't want to go too fast. I want you to come along. So now we become less of ourselves. The ego starts diminishing on its own because it sees itself. We've seen it. We've seen what we really are. And you, truth above all else. You can believe anything you want, but when you see the truth, the belief goes. The first thing to go is the belief. This is realized truth. And beliefs don't have a chance in that. It just leaves in the wind. Now, this sense of witness carries a sense of self within it. I'm looking at. We have to be very careful with it because the ego has now formed itself into something slight of hand. Instead of the big thing it's looking at, it's a small thing that's looking. I call this a film of self. It no longer carries the baggage of the ego, but it does carry the ability to differentiate. And you need that. Your whole life you need that. 
your whole life you need something that tells you you're here and the door is over there and where you parked your car. Okay? You don't lose that. But is that the whole story of freedom? No. Something else grows parallel to that, which is beautiful, you see, because while we're perceiving our way out of the ego, we're lessening the sense of control of self, seeing through it as a permeable thing rather than an entity of substance. We've already seen through all of that. And as this thing becomes permeable, as it becomes known, It becomes less apparent. The objects and what it knows becomes less apparent. Because those two are contingent upon one another. What I know and the knower of what I know arise together. They're the same thing, just differentiated, so that I know this, but the I know this is really part of the knowing. I don't know if you got all that. But it is really exciting to me. So, okay. So as the sense of self begins to realize that the objects arise with it, there's less need to call itself forward. And so the objects now go back into their original merged state. in tandem with my ability to understand and know, which hasn't gone away, it just isn't being utilized every moment, to know what, who Bob is and who Alice is. So those two are parallel to each other. They're simultaneous to each other. They sound like they're in contradiction. They sound like they're a paradox, but not when you live it. Not when you live it. And what happens as the need to bring forth the knowledge, and therefore me with the knowledge, becomes less acute because I don't need to control the world. I feel safe in an uncontrolled world, in a world that is not known. I feel safe because I don't need to know what everything is. I don't need that. I needed it at one time because I felt unsafe, but I don't feel unsafe now. So the ego has given up its need to derive safety from everything. And so we live very comfortably in the not knowing that is simultaneous to the knowing that hasn't gone away. You don't forget what you knew. But it doesn't call forth the perception, perceptual fix that it did when it was only the knowing and there was no not knowing. Now it lives side by side with one another. Do you see? Do you see how the ego was essential in that side by side living? Do you see how we're not trying to get back into a mindless emergence where we don't know anything? That's silly. That's naivete. We want the ability to discern. In fact, Manjushri, for those of you who know that sword, the sword of Manjushri, is the sword of discernment. 
sitting right next to Avalokiteshwara, who is the heart of compassion, is the knowing of, you see, and when, when we were working our way out of ourselves, that discerning quality of what I am not, I am not my thoughts, I am not my emotions, I am not this, I am not that, I'm not the objects, I'm not, when all of that I am not releases the, the attraction of form completely. Because you're not it. And you don't need it to determine you anymore. I needed you to determine me as an antagonist or a protagonist. I don't need you that way anymore. And now my heart comes out. Now Avalokiteshwara, now the heart comes out. In boundless joy. These are not empty words. So the reflection, what I'm not, and the discernment, differentiation, go side by side with the non-reflection and the mergence. They live in parallel. Nothing happened. Thank you. That was a fun talk for me. (laughs) Don't don't let my passion... I get very passionate about this because I... Don't let that bowl you over, okay? Meet it with your own passion. That's my hope. And all of you are so, uh, as I began the talk, I mentioned how lovely you are to us. And that brings out more of of uh, of a wish for you, of a meta wish. Okay, all. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.